Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. White House staff turnover during the Biden administration has been low relative to other recent presidents. Turnover reached 35 percent in 2022 and dropped to 23 percent last year. Here with some perspective, the observer who came up with the numbers. She's a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings, Katie Tenpus. Katie, good to have you back. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you. And just begin a couple of definitions. One, when you talk about White House staff turnover, which staff are you counting in this? Who's included? Yeah, no, that's a terrific question. It's very difficult to get a comprehensive list of White House staff. So what I've done is adopted the National Journal's definition. They created an addition at the start of each new administration called decision makers. And for the first six months of an administration, they assigned several reporters to go around Washington, D.C. to try to figure out who the most influential staff members would be. They published this from Ronald Reagan through Obama. And then they stopped with Donald Trump. A reporter called me and asked me if I was continuing to study White House staff turnover. And I said, oh, I can't do it anymore because the National Journal is no longer publishing decision makers. And she said, well, I think there's a way. Why don't we pair up? And so the two of us, Madison Alder and I, paired up. And we basically tried to replicate what the National Journal had done in those prior editions. So I studied something called the A-Team. And in the case of Biden, the A-Team is 66 individuals that I have carefully identified as being the most influential staff members. So I'm only looking at sort of the very top tier, including assistance to the presidents, the, you know, the director of the National Economic Council, the very senior positions in the executive office of the president. And the way I define turnover is any movement within a position. So let's say somebody moves from deputy chief of staff to chief of staff. Well, they're still in the White House, but it does create a vacancy. I count that as turnover because it does mean that the White House will then have to fill that position of deputy chief of staff. So even though there is staff continuity and a promotion, it still creates a disruption. And that's what I'm really trying to identify. So I start with a sample in the case of Biden of 66, and I monitor those departures or those movements And then I look year to year how many people have departed. And I now have data going all the way back to Reagan. So I can kind of show you objectively where presidents stand in terms of White House staff stability. Is the press secretary among those? Yes. Jen Psaki was in this sample. She's no longer in the sample. Once you fall out, you fall out. No, but what I mean is this could point to the reason for following these kinds of things, because she was pretty good at parrying with the press. The young lady that came after seems to struggle, you know, a bit with dealing with these things. And so turnover can affect performance, fair to say? It can affect performance for a lot of reasons. I think at the beginning of each new administration, you really are getting the first string. You are getting the people that the incoming president knows the best, who have probably worked with them the longest, who they deem to be the most talented and best suited for specific positions. And as an administration ages... Then you're moving to the second string and then you're moving to the third string. So you're right that the talent pool changes over time. And I think that there are just some jobs like press secretary where the burnout level is extraordinarily high. I mean, the pressure on those individuals is ridiculous. And so you are going to have turnover. So you do need to be prepared to have deputies. And not everybody is going to be successful as their predecessor. I would say the other thing that's bad about turnover is that when someone departs, the successor has to learn in real time. You know, when you work in the White House, you have four years and the clock is ticking constantly. So any time that you set aside to sort of study up and try to figure out a job, 
it's real time. You, you know, you're wasting those days or those months that are ticking away and that will no longer exist unless you get reelected. Did you track it during the Trump administration? I think you were on during that, but that was kind of like, you know, Dorothy saying, my people certainly come and go around here. So I have to say that the Trump administration was what put my research on the map. I had been studying White House staff turnover since the late 90s. I originally got onto this whole topic because my dissertation for my PhD was how do presidents simultaneously run the government and run for re-election? And I realized that in examining the different re-election campaigns, there seemed to be a lot of staff turnover in year three where senior staff members would go work for the re-election campaign. And then that just sort of got me down the rabbit hole. I thought, you know, this is really interesting. These jobs are some of the most influential jobs in our government. And for many people, this is the job of a lifetime, to get to work for a president, to get to work for the White House. And I was noticing, I was like, why is it that people are leaving after 18 months or 24 months? I mean, you'd think if you had this opportunity, you would stay until it ended. So that's kind of what got me going. I just became very curious. And then I did a lot of research looking at the private sector and how they spend millions of dollars on retention efforts. How do we retain the best and the brightest? So I thought this is really anomalous. We have, you know, the most influential positions in our government because president's portfolio is so large that they have to rely on these people. And these people are unelected and they have all of this influence. Why would you give up a job like that? So that kind of led me down the rabbit hole. And then I've been working with the Miller Center at UVA and they do a lot of oral histories. So I've been able to ask questions of a lot of former White House staffers to try to learn more about it. We're speaking with Katie Tenpus. She is non-resident senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings. Let's get to the Biden administration. You found that there's plenty of turnover, but it's only middling in terms of how it ranks compared with the other seven presidents you've looked at. Right. If you look at the, the White House staff turnover amidst the 18, President Biden comes in fourth. He ranks behind George H.W. Bush, who came in at 57 percent turnover after three years. And President Clinton and President George W. Bush both had 58 percent turnover after three years. And President Biden has 65 percent turnover after three years in office. So he's fourth. Obviously, we had an outlier that made White House staffing interesting. Um, That was President Trump and his turnover after three years was almost 20 points higher at 83 percent. So almost complete turnover of the people around him. Yes, of the most senior people. Right. And, you know, I think that, like I said before, stability is important to performance. I am usually reluctant to compare the private sector to the government. But in the case of turnover, all the disruption that occurs in the private sector also occurs in the White House. So anybody can relate to the fact of when their boss leaves or the head of an office leaves, it creates a lot of anxiety. It inhibits your ability to do any sort of long-term planning. And so I think that it's important that presidents, you know, when they ask these individuals to work for them in their administration, that they stay as long as they can, provided that their performance is good. You know, presidents should have the capacity to ask people to leave at any moment. Sure. And the fact that people do leave before the end of the four years much less the eight years. I'm not sure anyone can survive eight years. Part of the issue is just the hours, right? I mean, it is not a nine to five Monday through Friday situation if you're on that so-called A-team. Absolutely not. Yes. You're probably working 70, 80 hours regularly, if not more. Lots of travel in some cases. And I argue that what we saw in year three, unlike year two, was the departure of the creme de la creme, like the very senior senior within the A-team. And Part of the reason I contend is that many of these people were actually in year five. They weren't in year three because they had worked on the campaign. So you think about the campaign hours. They had a pretty rocky transition because there was so much uncertainty. 
And then they started the administration. So many people were on year five instead of year three. And who are some and, of the notables uh, that have left in year three? Let's yeah, put some no, names that's here. That's a great question. Chief of Staff Ron Klain, probably the most influential individual who left. Um, but then you also had the domestic policy advisor, Susan Rice. You had the director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese. You had the legislative director, Louisa Terrell, who was thought to be quite successful in getting Biden legislation, infrastructure bills, other bills passed. You had the communications director, Kate Bedingfield, who had been with Biden through the campaign. And then you had the director of intergovernmental affairs, Julia Rodriguez. You also had two positions that I would actually say were even more influential. And the reason why is because they required Senate confirmation. And one of those was National Cyber Director Chris Inglis, and the other was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Cecilia Rouse, who is now the president of Brookings, I should add. But those, I think, in many ways are the most consequential because you may have noticed how much trouble and how difficult it is to get the president's appointees through the confirmation process. President Biden is having a lot of success getting the judicial nominees through the nomination process. But when it comes to the individuals that are serving in the executive departments, getting those appointees through, it's been much slower. And it's a peripheral issue. But then if you look at the cabinet appointees, I think that's been almost totally stable so far in the uh, Biden administration. Yeah. So if you separate the A-team within the executive office of the president and look only at the president's cabinet, and I define the president's cabinet as the 15 positions in the line of presidential succession. Ever since President Eisenhower, presidents have done this thing where they take certain positions like the U.N. ambassador and they make that what they call cabinet level. And so in an effort to get people to take jobs or in an effort to make them feel better about their position, they elevate a position to the cabinet level. But it's not in the line of presidential succession. It can change from president to president. It can even change within a presidency, as it did for Nikki Haley's position during Trump. And so I really think the best way to examine cabinet turnover is to only compare apples to apples, is to only look at the positions in the line of presidential succession. And President Biden has only lost one cabinet member, and it was the labor secretary. And when you study the cabinet, oftentimes a simple way of teaching it is to say there's the inner cabinet, which is state, justice, treasury, and defense. And then we have the outer cabinet that tends to be more constituency related, like veterans affairs or labor or education. So he lost one individual, and the one individual is actually in the outer cabinet as opposed to the inner cabinet. So in, in many ways, it's even less of a loss. Right. Um, and Marty Walsh went from one place where people bang into each other, like the White House, <laughs> into another one, which is the National Hockey League. So I guess for yes. him, there's a, something of a, uh, a pattern in there. But to sum it all it, up, though, it's probably fair to say it really is lonely at the top. Being a cabinet secretary or being a president? Being a president. Yeah, I would. Yeah, possibly. But, you know, in the case of President Biden, I would say it, it is different in the sense that he's been in politics for so many years. He has all these close advisors like Steve Reschetti and Mike Donilon. And I just feel like he knows people better. And he was vice president. So he really has a sense. You know, talk about preparation for the job. Like, you really know what you're expecting. Unlike, you know, President Obama, who had only been a senator and then became president. I think uh, in the case of President Biden, there might be a whole lot less loneliness um, and just to get back to the, the cabinet turnover, you know, President Biden has only lost one cabinet secretary. And comparatively, at the same time in office, President Trump had lost 10 of his cabinet secretaries after three years. I mean, that is just a striking difference. Yes. And it ultimately, then, whatever policy objectives you have are that much less attainable when there is all this turnover. Exactly. Well, you need steadiness to drive the policy down through the bureaucracy. It just doesn't happen automatically. That's right. That's exactly right.
Dr. Katie Tenpas is director of the Katzman Initiative at Brookings. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about presidential staff turnover at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm-hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.